Luke, Luke 18, 18 through 30. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. All right. Thanks, Marianne. Anybody here ever been sorrowful? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've ever had sorrow. I think we all have at one time or another some form of sorrow. Sorrow is one of those emotional things that comes by degree. And how do you measure your sorrow against my sorrow? Whose is worse or better or less or what? I mean, there's no real way to measure any of that, is there? Is there such a thing as a sorrow-free life? I don't think so. It must play a role in our lives that's more important than we uh, recognize or know about. This guy in this story today, he had sorrow, and it says that Jesus saw him, you know, when he was sorrowful. Anyway, we'll move on. What's the first thing I got on there, Bryce? Is it that list of questions again? Yep. We're doing that, what Jesus sees. I think we're done with that, by the way. We've left Mark and done a couple in Luke. There's a few more, but one thing. This guy still lacked, so I got to thinking, maybe we'll do one thing for a while, because that shows up in the Bible, too. So we're going to do that next. What's the one thing? I don't know how we're going to tie it together with invitations, but nonetheless, you know, we need to be focused like Christ is focused on things, on people, on, and that's what this list of questions has been that we've been looking at. Does my life reflect what he, do I see what he sees? That's the real question. Last night, we had quite a time last night. Some of the best spaghetti in the world, I think. Those guys who were doing the cooking, Major Phil here had his finger in it, stirring it, I'm sure. But it was really good. 
He says he put crushed up bay leaves in it. I'm not sure how that works, but it was good. And everybody was involved, and we had new people here that have not been here before at any of our other dinners, and we had a lot of good interaction with people. But what did we see when they were here? Did we see them as Jesus sees them? You know, that's that's the real question. I think we do. Well, maybe not. I mean, do we really see like Jesus sees? No. We'll just get that off the table. But I think that we see them as people that the Lord wants to show his love to, just like he has shown his love to us. So in that sense, yes, we do We do see them that way. So we're glad for whoever was here, not only working and helping last night, but the visitors that came. And the fact that the gospel testimony in this little town is, you know, reaching out more and more and, and in different ways, and it's all good. But Luke eighteen twenty four, Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, and the whole idea of sorrow is having grief all around. It's just grieving and grieving and grieving, just having this intense sadness within your soul, your life, your heart. I mean, it's just there. The 1828 dictionary runs up a bunch of words and kind of looks like this. Grieving for the loss of some good on account of some unexpected evil or expected evil. Deeply serious, depressed, dejected, producing sorrow, exciting grief, mournful, over a sorrowful accident, expressing grief. It just goes on and on. So we all kind of know what it is, and by some degree we've all felt it. But when the disciples were with Jesus toward the end of his life, he said, look, you see me right now, but in a little while you're not going to see me. And, and you're going to be very sad when that happens. And in John 16, 20, he says that uh, most assuredly you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, he's talking to the 12 disciples there, I expect, or however many people were there learning from him at the time. But here's a key point, <clears throat> that sorrow can be turned into joy. It's going to happen here or there, now or then. When? When is this going to happen? Because it's getting kind of heavy down here. But nonetheless, from what Jesus told the twelve, when I go away, the world will rejoice and you're going to feel pain. But that pain is going to be turned at some point. When you study the apostles' lives, you'd have to conclude that they probably didn't get a whole lot of joyous satisfaction this side of glory. I mean, they, they all, 12 of them, suffered some pretty rough endings. But there was still this hope, this promise of joy, this of something better. Talking to a kid one day, he says, man, I believe in God because there's so much evil in the world. I said, wow, that's interesting. There's so much bad stuff. There has to be some good somewhere. And he had come to the conclusion that there had to be a God, a good God, because of that. Otherwise, it didn't make any sense. And not a Christian guy, just a thinker. He hope we'd pray for him. Hopefully, he gets saved someday. In uh, our church building was built in 1896. A couple years before that, Spurgeon said this about 1620. 
So the more of it, the better. If our sorrow is going to be turned into joy, it seems like the more sorrow we wrestle with on this side, I mean, if I have a big pile of sorrow and it gets flipped over into a big pile of joy, isn't that a good thing? I think that's what he's getting at. It's kind of funny in some ways, but I think old Spurgeon really believed it. Happy is he who endures a trial, since his trial is to be turned into happiness. Count it all joy, James said. That was, like I say, four years before this building was put up. Isn't that amazing? That's a while back. But sorrow was existing back then too. Spurgeon knew it. He knew, he understood that. So, what, what are you saying? We just quote a bunch of Bible verses and everybody feels better and we go home? You know, say a prayer, rub the lamp, poof, you get a genie. The candy God in the sky makes everything better. What? How's it work? And we often as Christians will read your Bible, pray every day, grow, 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 outdo your pain. And, but it doesn't seem to work that way all the time, does it? It seems like we read the scripture and we still hurt. We, we feel the pain and we, we pray a lot, but we still wrestle with the issues of life. But is all of that helping us to grow deeper roots, to become stronger in the winds of adversity? You know, the whole oak tree story. The more the wind blows, the deeper the roots go, kind of a thing. Boy, it all sounds so good, doesn't it? Just explain it all away, you know. But yet, there is something deep about sorrow. It's one of those emotional things that's internal, and it just doesn't go away. You know, we we get along, we get by, but if you've ever lost a serious loved one, does the sorrow ever go away? Not really. It might change a little bit, but it's never really gone. So we sure don't want to just quote a bunch of Scripture and pretend that it's not real. Or like Spurgeon, I I think it's a good sermon. It's a good idea that if we endure while we're here and we have a lot of sorrow, we can expect that the pleasant or the... uh, present-day sufferings of this world are not to be compared to the glory that is yet to come. I think Paul said something like that, so it's biblically true. So is that helping you all get through your sorrow today? It doesn't change the sorrow, does it? But it should help us to see beyond it a little bit and say, yes, this is a broken world and a fallen place, and we are suffering some in all of that. But better days are coming. You know, better days are coming, I guess. John sixteen thirty three. then Jesus said just a little bit later to these guys, the same disciples, look, I've told you this stuff ahead of time so that you might be able to figure out a, a little bit of peace in it, in the struggle, so that when it comes, that you won't be totally overwhelmed, that you could find a little peace. But know this, that in the world is going to be a tough time. But I, I'm overcoming that. They didn't know what he was talking about because it was before Calvary. But I am going to overcome the world. And John says later, I think about the same thing. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. You know, that we have this ability to believe that God himself took care of all the sorrow and the pain. Didn't necessarily deliver us from all of it right now. But there's hope in that suffering. There's hope in the hardship. 
that if our faith is in the one who has overcome it all on the cross at Calvary, that in the atonement, the sacrifice that paid for all things that are wrong, that Jesus actually endured all the same kind of sorrow that we're wrestling with right now. He is the victor over it all. And even though that doesn't help us in a sense alleviate the pain, but if we can kind of mix our faith in with it somehow and say that there's more to come, there's more to this than what we see right in the here and now. And to begin to wrestle with that in a deeper way by faith, trusting that the words that Jesus has spoken are good words, that somehow we can find help in it. This guy, Scott Crow, there's no sin or transgression, pain or sorrow, which is outside the healing power of what Christ has done. <clears throat> so should we never feel sorrow? No, that's not the issue. We're going to continue to feel that, but the sorrow, the same kind of sorrow that we feel, again, is the same sorrow and pain that Jesus paid for and experienced on the cross at Calvary. So we have someone who understands our condition, and we should run to him with it. He understands, he knows, he paid for it all. Let's see, uh, it's real and it can serve a purpose in our lives. I guess the real question is, how do we manage the pain and the sorrow that we feel? Or how do we let it manage us? So I think we have an element of human responsibility in all of that, and it comes out in this story today. The way Jesus lets the guy do whatever it is he's going to do to handle his own sorrow. Why didn't Jesus just zap him and take care of the... We'll get to that in a little bit, but I think we have some responsibility... Often we're so focused on our sorrow, it's like sorrowful me, sorrowful me. That's the thing. How do we deal with the pain and the futility of it all? Pain, suffering, sorrow, agony, sadness, grief, despair, heartache, weeping, mourning, misery, distress, aching, depression, disappointment, gloom, despair, anguish, hopelessness, darkness, whoa, desolation. 1-800-CALL-AMANDA. She's your resident counselor. She'll help you. Don't call me. <laughs> I have my own troubles, man. I'm just kidding. No, but everybody wrestles with this same sorrowful me stuff, don't we? And it's just it's hard sometimes. Uh, so how do I manage all of that, or how, or does it manage me? That's why we have such things as pastors and counselors and friends. You know, and confidant, people that we can talk to and trust and share life with, because if we don't, then we're stuck doing it all ourselves. And if we get into that mode of it's poor me, poor me, man, it, it can be just overwhelming and excruciatingly painful. Part of the answer to the whole thing is just understanding what happens with, uh, in 1824, it just says when Jesus saw that he was sorrowful. I think we should learn this from the story, if nothing else. The Lord that loves us sees us in our sorrow. 
And that should be some comfort. Say, well, why doesn't he do something about it? He did. And do you trust him? He did. That's the whole point. He did something about it. He paid for it all. It's taken care of. Do you believe it? Do you trust him? Now, managing my sorrow or any of these other emotional deals here, that might take a lot of help from my friends. Sounds like a rock tune. I need a little help from my friend, you know. Sometimes it's more serious than that. We need to talk to people who are trained to help us to think more deeply about our lives. Luke eighteen eighteen. A certain young ruler came saying, young ruler, this, uh, what do you call it? An archon, an archone or whatever. But the arch guy, the number one guy, the really big ruler guy. This guy had some clout. He had uh, the gravitas, I guess. We'll hear that. It's an election year. That kind of word's coming up again. You know, they've got the capital, the, the leadership skill. This was the guy. Certain ruler came and he says, good teacher. What's that all about? Trying to, in the world we call that kissing up, I think, something along that line. <clears throat> Mark and Matthew, three of the, uh, the gospel writers tell the story. In, Ma- in Mark, he says he came running up and he knelt down. I mean, he's pouring it on thick. He gets right down. Oh, great teacher. Oh, good teacher. You're so good. You're so good. Tell me what I can do to be good. See what he said in Matthew? What good thing must I do? Because I need you to validate my religious experiences. I've been a good little Jewish boy all my life. I've done all the right stuff. I behave. I do all this stuff. But good teacher, give me the good word that I'm a good boy, a good man. I need you to validate my existence. Of course, Jesus fell for that one really quick. He says, why are you calling me good? Verse 19. You being a good little Jewish guy, don't you know that there's none good but God? It's in the Old Testament. So don't come around here playing that game with me. And he just moves right on. He says, okay, well, you're so good. Then what? Uh, you know the commandments, good Jewish guy. No adultery, no murder, no stealing, no lying, and treat your folks well. Makes you wonder why he picked those, doesn't it, for this particular case. (laughs) And then you know, telling what this guy has done to get the money that he has. Or is the Lord just trying to get to his conscience? In Matthew, Matthew adds something to it. He says this, oh yeah, by the way, don't forget to love your neighbor as yourself. And Mark adds a little something to it as well. He says in that list of uh, the commandments, he adds this one. He says, and don't defraud anyone. There's a big one. What's that? that? Is there a commandment that covers that one? Why did Jesus put that one in there? You know, fraud, where you come up with a con game to financially gain over the someone else. <clears throat> Verse 21. Well, I've done all this from my youth. (laughs) Really? I mean, Jesus has just served the guy notice. You know, like, nail it right to the church wall. Look, how about this list here? Fraud, 
love your neighbor. <laughs> Why are you calling me good? By the way, do you believe in God or anything? He just served the guy notice. And the guy is so dumb, he says, oh, I've done all that. Yeah, right. Murdered and stole and lied and took money from people. Here's a short version of it. It's self versus God. Why are you calling me good? It's self versus your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole fraud thing. Other people's money. Oh, I've done all that from my youth. Wow. Is this a confession time or are you still running street game on the preacher here, you know? What a, what a guy. I've done all that. Kept himself above God. Yeah, he did all that. He kept himself above his neighbor. He did all that. And he lined his pockets with other people's money. He did all that too. What a guy. So, now Jesus is looking at the guy and there he stands and he's, he's saying all this stuff. And sometimes I wonder, why didn't he just sort of like send down a lightning bolt and just make this guy into a post toasty right now, you know? Poof! Done. Game over. And there he stands telling him, oh, I've done all that. Wow. That's all you got out of the commandments, huh? That you're perfect. You're so, you're so perfect that you can judge the Messiah as being good. You're qualified for that task? To go around judging the Lord Jesus being good? But he is, like, we get that, but wow. I'll be the judge of all things. Verse 22 says, when Jesus heard these things, now, we've been talking about when Jesus sees. Well, here we have when Jesus heard. Not only does Jesus see this guy, but he's hearing him. And he isn't smoking him. You know, he hears him. And he's listening to this guy's heart. That's good stuff. <clears throat> well, he says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Eppie Meyer said it this way. He said, uh, it's necessary for Christ to prove to this young man that he was not living the life of love as he seemed to suppose. In his mind, he's just a good little Jewish guy. And he's obviously a good one because he's been blessed financially. And he who has the gold has the rule, right? And he's a good ruler. It's a golden rule. He's in charge. It's clear that God loves him because God has given him all the stuff. But yet, if he's so convinced that he's got it made, why did he come and ask the question in the first place? For all of the goodness of his law-keeping, as he claims, it still hadn't washed his conscience clean of the awareness of the shortcoming that he had. The shortcoming being he was not yet certain he had done enough. What must I do? Is there? Am I missing something? Can't be much. I know there's not much I haven't done. Right. But what is it, Lord? Just tell me that one last little thing. I'll go get her done, and we'll be all good. 
One more thing. Mark 10.21 says it a little bit differently, but it's similar. It says, then Jesus looked at him. Jesus saw him. And we know in Luke here, it says Jesus heard him. Well, here in Mark, it says Jesus also loved him. He saw him, he heard him, and he loved him. And he spoke to him. He said, there's still something missing, isn't there? There's still something missing, isn't there? There's still one thing that you're a little shy of. I think the one thing is the love factor. What is it? What's the one thing? You still think God doesn't care? You think the Lord Jesus is outside the awareness of the struggle that you face today in this auditorium, that all of us, that He isn't aware of our pain and our sorrow and our heartaches and uh, the way that the life that we live is beat the ever-living snot out of us and the pain that we feel and the scars that we bear. You know, but yet, He sees us, He hears us, He loves us, and He's speaking to us, and He's asking the question, What's the one thing? Is there one thing yet that I must do? Lord, is there one thing? Is there something that I am doing that needs to be changed? The one thing, does it need to go? What is it? But Christ is ever active in our lives, helping us to get to that place. See, hear, love, speaking through His Word. Hey, Carl, there's one thing yet. Okay, what's next? I say next because it seems like there's always something. Well, maybe you don't have that problem, but there's always something, isn't there? They'll be working on. Well, when the rich kid heard this in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And interesting that the very sorrowful goes along with the very rich. And it wasn't so much the money that was the problem. I think it was the passion with which he held the money, the desire that he had for it. Now, a Lebanese-born American guy, his parents were from Lebanon anyway back in the late 1800s. He's written some pretty wild books. His parents, I think, were Christians, but I don't believe he was. He wrote a book called The Prophet, which is one of the most popular ones that he wrote. But it's what he said about sorrow, which I thought was pretty powerful. And I think that's why the Lord went after what the guy the way that he did to try to get into his heart, get into his head, get into his soul a little bit and shake him up in a way that he could feel the emotion and the, that his, his priorities are all attached in the wrong place. But when you are sorrowful, look again in your own heart and you will see that, that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your idol. Is that what he said? He said delight. But isn't that the issue, though? I mean, it could be that I'm feeling so much pain and sorrow and heartache over a thing because I really wanted it to be a certain way. And the depth of sorrow is related to the depth of desire that I wanted the thing. There's a correlation between all of that. And so this guy was very wealthy, and he was also very sorrowful. And he's trying to run game on God himself and try to get 
and pull from him the affirmation and pull from his neighbors everything that they had so he could validate his own existence and cushion his life with silver and gold and affection and whatever from everyone around him. But it wasn't working because they all probably hated him because of the way he acquired his wealth. But there he was, very sorrowful. And he walked away from the only person that could help him with that sorrow and went on to be the poorest man that ever lived so richly. That makes sense? Yeah, it's, it's a sad story. Did he stay? Did he follow? Did he sell everything? Well, we'll find out. Verse 24, when Jesus saw the sorrow, when he saw it, he said how hard it is for the riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we at church, when we find a rich person and they try to leave the fellowship, you know, we chase them, man, because we want them to stay in the church because we need the offering money. Don't be leaving now because we need you here. Jesus loves you. Come back. That's kind of how you run church, man, you know. I didn't see Jesus doing that, though. He just sort of like, this is sad because he has so much stuff. He's just going to walk away. He's walking away from the Messiah, the Savior. He's, how hard is it if our affections are on the wrong thing, creating sorrow in our lives, but yet, the comfort of the known, the known life, the known source of pain, the comfort of that isn't as scary as walking away from it not knowing what's going to happen next. So that fear kind of keeps us tied up and bottled up and we'll embrace the wrong stuff for decades because we're so afraid to walk away from it because we don't know what's out there. And so we're stuck in this sorrowful place, but we're comfortable with it because it's the same every day and we're used to it. And I would rather nurse the known sorrow than the unknown joy because the world hasn't given me anything but sorrow. I don't expect there will ever be anything joyous. And we cripple ourselves, and there we lay. Mark 10.22, it says that, he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful. The guy just went away sorrowful. You know, in this story, it doesn't say that, but he did walk away and he kept his sorrow. It just meant so much to him. 25, then Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those that heard it said, well, who then can be saved? Good night. That sounds like nobody can get in. Needle eyes pretty small. Can't even hardly get a camel hair through that thing, you know, let alone a whole camel. Then in Jesus said, but the things in 27, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Yes, rich people can get saved. People with money can come to know the Lord. But somewhere along the line, there has to be some heart surgery accomplished that separates the idolatry and the passion and the love for things silver and gold in exchange for that which is eternal. 
The 28th, and Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you, Lord. Are we in or out? I think Peter's a little nervous. <laughs> but, 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 we, we're, uh, you know. And the answer is always interesting because he doesn't mention husbands and he doesn't mention sisters in this list. Isn't that kind of weird? I guess the men don't count and sisters don't count. But if you think about Peter raised the question and if he's just answering Peter, Peter was married. We know that. We know he had a brother, Andrew. He must have had a couple of brothers. Don't know if he had any sisters. Maybe he was just answering Peter, speaking to Peter's heart now. Why? Because you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't have a family. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. You should walk away. You should dump all that stuff and join the mission field. What's he saying? No, he's saying is that things that cause sorrow quite often are within the very family. That's where most of the pain comes from, isn't it? The struggles? Relationships. Primary relationships. And somehow in the primary relationships, if you can't separate the sorrow of life from the love of God or somehow put it together or walk with Christ in it all, you see, you're all bound up. And it's going to be difficult. The whole kingdom of God thing is going to be difficult because it's all twisted together somehow in a strange way. Yeah, I'm telling you that somehow you have to separate yourself from all of these things, and yet I don't think for one minute the Lord is saying that you should dump your family and join a church somewhere. I don't I don't think that's the issue at all. It somehow has to do with the sorrow and the pain of relationships. And are you willing to follow Christ when life is hard? It basically, all the good things in life that aren't really on the short list of sinful can become idols to us as well. They can become things that cause sorrow. Like working for a living, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Depends on where your heart is in your working, doesn't it? I mean, there are such things as workaholics, they say. And people who work so hard they neglect their family. And there's, so there's, but it's a good thing to have a job. But it's working through all of that that makes it a bit more of a challenge. But don't make any good things this, uh, idol and then sorrow that we experience related to friends and family and what are the sorrow the pain of living man don't make that an idol i think with our sorrow we should be able to see beyond this life and see christ somehow that he's promised to deliver us from this that this is not this is not a life sentence it feels like it but life is a temporary assignment it really is and for those who are believers we have this eternal thing going on this everlasting kingdom thing going on and the sorrow is just part of it well what part does it play James chapter 1, I quoted a little bit ago, says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And within the concept of trials, 
there would be the sorrow of life as well. And he goes on to talk about double-mindedness and wind and all that stuff and being tossed and blown all over the place because we're not grounded in His Word and understanding what happened at Calvary. The sorrow can become so overwhelming that we're not willing to look at it and deal with it and take it out and examine it and find out, is there life with the pain, with the suffering? Can I survive if I in a sense, fake it till I make it, if I can just keep living a joyous Christian life knowing that I still have <clears throat> a very heavy heart about many things. Do you ever keel over? And we use that term today yet, don't we? Keel over? Dead? Keel over. It's actually a sailing term. Here we had a picture of a sailboat. Below the water line, you have the keel. It hangs down. Uh, what's his name here? What's your name again? Phil. <laughs> Phil and I were discussing this earlier today because he walked in on me about the time that I was doing this, but it was good. So this keel thing is down here, and it's a drag in the water. It really slows the boat down. But without it, when the wind blows, the boat could just go sideways right across the lake. You'd have a hard time steering it. And a lot of the emotional stuff that's really deep in our lives is there for a reason. That's why James says, count it all joy when you're having a trial. Why? Because part of that trial is what's helping the boat get where it's going. That God Himself, in His sovereignty, in His wisdom, in understanding who we are and what we're made of, is able to work in our lives in a way to help us navigate some pretty rough water. Wind above in the sails, keel below. A lot of friction. But it's all necessary for what? For us to exercise trust and faith in the God who loves us. Now, that's a short answer. I know it took over 30 minutes, but that's a short answer of the value of sorrow in our lives. Here's uh, the important purpose of a keel. You know, is just to keep the boat stable. And sorrow, as rough as it can be, really does help us. Second Corinthians, I think Paul says, you know, the comfort you've been comforted with, you can comfort others. Why? Because of the sorrow that you've gone through. So there's some learning involved in all of that. Friction in the water below here on earth. You know, the water's part of the earth program, but count it all joy. Sorrow and trials can be helping to lower our keel, helping us to get that thing deeper into the water before the winds pick up to help our faith really to help our faith endure to help us keep moving in a good direction it's just all related sad part about this story is that the rich guy walked away sorrowful became the poorest man alive the Lord Jesus he saw the guy he loved him. He saw him. He heard him. He talked to him. 
And He sees us the same way. He sees us. He sees every one of us in our sorrow. You know what He's asking? Trust me. The keel's down. The sails are up. Just trust me.
last verse. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Well, Lord, we, uh, we know that your word has many good things for us that will booster, bolster, and strengthen our faith. Odd, but we must believe what the word says. In believing it, we also find some experiences that begin to validate our faith, and we're just thankful to know that your hand is upon us. We all struggle with sorrow in some ways, and uh, we know that you're going to rescue us from this place someday. And so we look to you, and as we go from this place this week, help us to remember these things that even with our hardships that we can walk by faith yet trusting you that this is temporary. It feels pretty bad, but it's temporary. Lord, we have uh, quite a few friends right now who are very, very sick. And uh, Cliff and Lane and Tim and a little kid named Noah down the street and many others. And uh, the sorrow and the pain and the heartache that could exist, maybe even now, And for some, there's a wave coming that's just maybe expected, but not knowing the depth or how hard it's going to crash against the rocks when it hits. But we just pray for those families, Lord, and help us to be strong on their behalf, to be lifting them up, knowing that you're still with them in it all. And if there's something that we can practically do to help these, just, Lord, give us the insight. Maybe let, let aside our own sorrow for a moment and begin to think about God and others. Lord, we thank you for the night in Jesus' name. Amen.